Well, I think we're good to go. Um, thanks, guys, for getting everything started back there. Here we go. Now, I have a question that I want you to consider in your own heart. This isn't a raise your hand or answer out loud. In fact, it's quite the opposite of that. Okay? I just want, this is between you and the Lord, and I want you to think about something right now. What do you lean on? In other words, push comes to shove, things get difficult, you know, things start to fall apart and all that kind of stuff in your life or in the world or whatever. Where do you go back to? I mean, what do you rely on? Do you have, for example, do you lean on this idea that you've got a real skill set because of what you've learned in your job? And so you've got this real experience and so the world's always going to need that. And so even if things start to fall apart, I still have value. I still have something I can contribute. Is it maybe that you've got a big bank account? You know, you saved up, you did well, whatever, got lucky, blah, blah, blah. But you got a lot of money in the bank, and so if push comes to shove, in the end, you know, I still got that that I can lean on. Is it, is it maybe just that you're just smart? You know what I mean? You just think to yourself, you know, I, I just am basically, I'm intelligent, and when things are happening, you know, I can kind of navigate the waters as well as the next guy, if not a little better, so I'll be okay. That's what I lean on to some extent. Is it maybe that you're just, you know, naturally good-looking, and, you know, good-looking people have it easier? Is that it? You know, is that what you lean on, okay? Is it maybe that you're just charming, you know what I mean? You just get along with people, and so, you know, you're going to be okay because you're going to get along. They're not going to shoot you, you know? You're going to get along with them, okay? What do you lean on? Now, this is a church. Most of us are Christians in here. Not all, but most of us. And, and even if you're not, you, you kind of know that, you know, who do you depend on? Who do you lean on? Of course, the answer is, well, God. And what we want to say is, and what we mean to say, and what we know to say is, only God. But is that true? I mean, let's just get really real, you know. I want to propose to you. I don't think it's possible to lean only on God. I'm not saying, I, I said that wrongly. It's possible to lean only on God. I just don't think anybody's ever actually accomplished it besides Jesus. I think every other person has God in their life, very much so. But they also have other things, by the way, some of which are God-given. Talents, abilities, giftings, things that you lean on in order to get by in the world, in order to do well, in order to provide for yourself, in order to move forward, right? There's things that God has given you, and so you lean on them. I want you to do something here. This is really important. So, uh, you know, whenever I ask people to do this, about half do it because you're just lovely people, and the other half don't do it because you just don't ever follow orders. So, okay. What I want you to do is, is in front of you is a pen, and ushers, thanks for coming forward. I want you to just take something. I don't even care what it is. A little piece of paper. And by the way, I don't care if you're married. This is one that you don't get, you don't show, you don't ever ask your spouse for this one. You're gonna, we're going to swallow it by the end of the time. You can't, right? And you can lie about whatever you wrote down. I'm looking for a thing that's between you and the Lord here, because the Lord's going to do something really cool at the end with this thing that you write down. And it may be two or three things. You know what I mean? It may be, really, you know, when I think about it, what's going to get me by? You know, yes, God, but also I think this, you know, my IRA or intelligence or skill sets or whatever. And I want you to write down just two or three things. Just take a little piece of paper. Like I say, I don't want to make it big. Take a little piece of paper. Ushers, come forward. If you need a pen, raise your hands. should be in front of you. But I want you to write down one, two, three things that are the things that you lean on. Okay, and like I say, nobody's ever going to see this, and you don't get to ask, okay? Love you, okay? But you don't get to ask. Over here, okay? 
We got it? Okay. Now, the, the pens will keep coming, so keep your hands raised and, and you know, catch our t- Bruce, over here. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Okay. We're going to pray right now, and I, again, be writing this down, and I want you to prayerfully consider what are the things that I lean on? Not just God, but what else do I lean on? And like I say, what's going to happen by the time at the end, we're going to come back to this. And, and I'm, you just want, wait to see what God does with this. I, it's, it's very cool. Okay. So who's our prayer today? Barb Bloomstrand. Oh, that is wonderful. There you go. Oh, that is incredible. Barb, who is just, you know, a pillar in this church and does so many things, uh, you know, but she just did the memorials for us and all that kind of stuff. And it was really cool, Barb. Way to go. Okay, so lift up this church, lift up the sermon, lift up another church. Oh, Father, I just thank you so much for Lake Sam. And Lord, they are a pillar of strength for me. And I just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And Father, I pray that today as the message is being told, that, Lord, you would just speak a new truth to our hearts, that it would change us, Lord. I pray that we would not lean on our own understanding, but, God, that we would truly trust you in every area of our lives. And I just pray for uh, South Lakeshore Christian Church in Tacoma, where I found you many years ago, and I just ask that you bless their um, congregation today. Lord, bless their hearts to hear a new truth about you also. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord, and thank you, Barb. That's awesome. Okay, we are in Revelation. We're doing our series here, Demystifying the Book of Revelation, which, like I say, it still seems that we got some chapters, but it's ending pretty quickly. Um, and you'll see a great swath again here today as we get through some things. But demystifying the book of Revelation, what we've been doing is, is getting incredible revelation from the Lord about our lives. And as at the same time that we're under, trying to understand what it is that this book is saying and looking at how it applies. Now, uh, I want to say one thing. Okay, in your uh, weekly update for those who actually follow these kinds of things, I told you that today was going to be about a revelation about Satan that frankly is just astounding. I mean, it's shocking. Um, that's not going to happen today. And the reason why is because as I worked on the sermon, it became very clear to me that it really needed to be a standalone. So it's part two of what's happening today. This stands on its own today. You'll see that. But it, we're going to pick up a lot of these concepts next week, and we're going to take them to an entirely different level so that it really puts in relief. I didn't want to cram this incredible revelation about about what God is showing us and about what it actually reveals about God. It's amazing. So I just want to tell you, that's happening next week, and, and all I can tell you is I, I just really think that's not one you're going to want to miss. I think it's a game changer all the way, okay? So, but with that in mind, what we want to do is, is I just want to take you just quickly back to this place where this is the timeline that we've been doing, okay? And I did this again last week, and I do it over and over. So if you don't understand what that means, please just go look at the opening to last week, and it'll explain all of it to you. Don't, I don't want to have to go through it again. I do want to point out one thing, though. Faith Kelly, praise God. Uh, this is a girl, gal who does precepts and so on, did a lot of work in Revelation. She said, hey, you're saying something about great tribulation that I'm not sure if I'm tracking with. What are you, what are you doing? And so on. And so we did some work together and looked into it and everything else. And, and actually, it was just wonderful. And the bottom line is, I've been saying, and still am saying, 
that at the fifth seal here, you've got martyrdom of Christians taking place in a huge way. And it, that's chapter 6. And in chapter 7, when the Christians are raptured, you have an angel in heaven saying, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. So it's referring to Great Tribulation. And you can either go forward in time, like a lot of people do with Revelation, or and take it as being something ahead. Or you can do what I'm doing with it, which is I really think 6 through 11 are a timeline. I think that's the way that he unfolded. I think the language is very clear. I think God did a lot of things to keep us from taking things out of sequence. He meant there to be seven. One, two, three, four, five, and then something, and then one, and then seven, and then one, two, three, four. And he did that on purpose because he was trying to tell us something. And I think we miss what he's trying to tell us when we mess with it. So we're taking it as simply as possible. And having said that, though, the one thing I want to say is, in chapter 7, it talks about great tribulation. It is also very clear that this last three and a half year period, this is the 70th week, Daniel's week. And remember, we're saying an Israelite timeline kicks, on, kicks back in after the Jews are sealed and Christians are raptured. So that this last three and a half is very much so the fulfillment, the ultimate great tribulation. The one that Jesus talks about and so on. But think about this. You know, John the Baptist is Elijah. Is he actually Elijah? No. Is he actually Elijah? Yes. See? And so there's very much a great tribulation. It's a multiple fulfillment thing, as we've talked about a lot and all that kind of stuff. So that's just, I want to thank Faith Kelly for it. I want to make sure that our doctrine here is sound. And I want good Bereans in the church. And I lift up faith as a good Berean for checking something and actually bringing a little clarity on something that I, too, was also working with before she even said it. I went, I'm confused a little bit, and it really helped me. All right? So... That said, praise God for a good body that's going after this stuff in a real way. All right? Now, where we were last week was we were to, see what, I, what we do is we say this is that timeline to chapter 11. At chapters 12 and 13, it folds back on itself even before end times all the way to Jesus. And 12 and 11 are showing the spiritual behind the physical all the way up to the end. And then we get these, the angels, the scene in heaven, and the seven bowls, all of which are before Jesus' return in chapter 19. It's said to be at the seventh trump here, but then it's, it's going back and it's filling in details now, things that happened before he comes. So that's why I've got these little arrows going up and saying that. And so last week what we looked at was the bowls. That's chapter 16. And now what we're doing is he's told us about the bowls and he gets to the end. But then he comes back around again and he says, I want to fill in some details here for you in 17 and 18 about Babylon, seventh bowl. But then I have some more that he's going to do in 19 until Christ comes again on the horse, chapter 19, yay. Okay, all right. All right, so having said that, I didn't mean that in a flippant way whatsoever. I know I said it that way. This is the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A mighty shout came from the throne in heaven saying, it is finished. The great city of Babylon split into three sections. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins. And he made a drink from the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And that's kind of a new piece of information for us that God is now going to explain in 17 and 18. So we're starting at 17. One of the seven angels who poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said. I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. Now, when he's talking about Babylon and he's personifying it, this is that symbolic language that we started hearing in 12 and 13, where he was trying to do something. Always remember something. 
In Revelation, there's a literal fulfillment, and there is a literal fulfillment. But there's also much more than that just being fulfilled. There's a spiritual thing behind it that's being fulfilled. And so whenever we get to the spiritual behind the physical, there's a real physical, a real literal. But when we get to the physical, then Revelation goes into symbolic language. It starts talking in, you know, the great horror and the, and the this and the that. And it starts saying things like that because it's trying to do what poetry does which is to communicate on a whole lot of different levels at one time so that we get the fullness of the meaning. By the way, it's the most efficient way of communicating. It doesn't do it to make it dark or complicated. We've been seeing over and over, we get to very what seem to be complicated properties, and we're just taken piece by piece and saying, what is God trying to communicate with that imagery? And boy, it's just as obvious as the day is long, and it becomes really easy. So God's not hiding anything. He's just trying to communicate efficiently, effectively, about the fullness of what's taking place. All right? So with that, we go into, the kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit to the wilderness, into the wilderness. See, in the spirit. This is this idea of he's seeing in the spiritual realm now, and he's seeing this thing that is happening. What he says is, so the angel took me in the spirit in the wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads, ten horns, blasphemies against God written all over it. Now, two things in this passage, one of which we've looked at, one of which is new. The first one that we've looked at is the woman And the three of them make an unholy trinity, okay, mimicking God. And so what happens here is we've got this beast, and we looked at it. When we were in chapter 13, we looked at great detail in what chapter 17 had to say about the beast because it's going to explain it now. So we've already looked at much of this chapter, so we're not going to spend time on that part of it, even though I'll read it because I, like I just am anal retentive about that. I like to read all the words. I think they're all kind of important, Okay. But if you want more detail on what all this stuff is, go back to that sermon that was about chapter 13. And it was actually, you know, all in there. Okay? So we've got a beast here. Now, this beast is mimicking that which Satan represented. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns on its horn. Uh, and written on each head were names that blaspheme God. See, it's the same thing being described as he wraps around and is giving more detail about it. Okay? Now, the one thing I want you to remember is, and we're going to see this later when it talks about five and five were and one is, and then there's one to come, but it's only for a short time, and then the eighth is the amalgamation of all the seven that have come before and so on. And it's not important to remember that. That was that for that other sermon. But I just want you to remember these are, the, these are the seven plus one, the one that's to come. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Germany, World War II, final empire. Okay? And what do they all have in common? What makes them a group? This is very important for today. What groups them together? There have been other world empires than just these. But what groups these guys together? The persecution of the Jews. The rampant lunatic. Think if, for a modern understanding of how bad it was, think. Germany, Hitler, two out of three Jews being killed in Europe. Just lunatics, satanically inspired, crazy persecution of God's people. That's what links these together. 
That's what God is saying. There's a spirit behind these things. Satan, right? So the point is, is, is that's what it is, and those are the seven. And then remember, as I already said, this in, in Revelation 12, we've got the dragon. In 13, we've got the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and they make an unholy trinity. There's Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Okay? And just remember that because that's going to become important in a moment here. Okay. So we're back to our passage here. We, we've looked at the beast in a previous sermon. There's the beast. The new thing is the woman. What is this woman? What, what is she about? We've seen other women, but not this particular one. What is this one about? Who is she? What is she? What's it supposed to mean? What's it supposed to communicate to us? Okay, so here's the woman, all right? The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she had a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of immorality. Just tell me, what's that referring, what's that, what's, what, what comes to your mind when you hear that language? Just say it out. Somebody say it. Prosperity. It's, it's wealth. Wealth. Power. And did, I, did somebody say something different than <laughs> prostitute? Oh, you said prostitute, prosperity? Same difference. Okay. And really, it is the same difference because that's exactly what he's doing. He's making a correlation here. He's talking about the, the wealth is what's being said here. Purple, by the way, this will come back, and I won't remember to do it, so I'm doing it right now. Purple, the Roman emperors wore purple. In fact, when you pass down to the next emperor, one of the ways of referring to passing to the emperors, they passed the purple. Okay, it was, the, it was that expensive you know, beautiful dye that was the kind of thing that was, this is what the royal, the emperor, the divine emperor wears, okay? So what we've got is the woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry, gold, all these gems. It's wealth, it's money, it's, and, and it's not just wealth and money, it's wealth and money doing what wealth and money and power often do, which is getting corrupt and perverse and obscene and ridiculous, and we're going to see more and more of that. So just having said that, a mysterious name was written on her forehead. And I, I, I segmented this out. This is how it's written in the Holman Christian Bible, so I'm just putting it up there like that, even though we're doing the LLT. Okay, a mysterious name was written on her head. Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world, but I really like the Holman translation on it. All the vile things of the earth. That was the, that's who she, all the vile things of the earth. Okay, so this word mysterious name, Okay, whenever, whenever John says that, what's he referring to? Mysterious. He's saying, heads up, I'm talking in code. Why is he doing that? Where is he living right now? Somebody. Patmos, which is what? A prison. <laughs> right? He's in prison. And who are his captors? Rome. <laughs> so he's just about to talk about Rome. It's not only Rome, by the way. Hang in there with me. If you've got good theology on this, watch what happens here, okay? But in part, he's clearly talking about Rome. And when he says a mysterious name, he's trying to say, hey, I'm talking in code now, okay? I'm calling her Babylon, and there's a very good reason for calling her Babylon, better even than Rome. But bottom line is, understand, <laughs> and it'll become really clear in the passage that he's obviously talking about Rome. So he's talking about this mysterious name, but then he goes in and he uses this term, Babylon. Now, why would he use the term Babylon? I mean, why? Well, there's several reasons. We're going to look at the two primary ones. Here's the first one. 
to the Jewish person, what does Babylon represent? See, to us, what does it represent? Just filth and, and, you know, wealth and money and perversion gone amok, right? But to the Jewish person, what does Babylon mean? Captivity. Okay? Babylon is that nation that back there in 586 to 516 B.C., this is, this is the, a main trade route. And Babylon Empire is pretty much everything you can see right there. And Babylon comes over here to this nation that is Israel and destroys this rebellious nation. Not only destroys the nation, but destroys the city of Jerusalem, that city that God himself has ordained. And not only that, but they destroy the temple. They take all of the goblets and the gold out of the temple and they take it back to Babylon. Okay? So what you've got right here, when he's talking about Babylon, what's it supposed to mean in people's minds? Captivity, destruction, right? Babylon destroys the nation, Jerusalem, and the temple. Rome, the date is 92 when, when John's writing. In 70, what happened? Jerusalem is sacked completely. The temple is destroyed. A few years after that, ending in... Um, Masada, Masada. Any, anyway, the, that's the last thing. So a few years after that, so Rome is Babylon. See, that's the only other nation that did this. The Assyrians took over the northern ten tribes, but this is the nation that wiped out the nation, God's city, and God's temple. So when he says Babylon, it's a direct correlation to Rome. <laughs> when Rome is, when Paul is writing, or when John is writing, do you see it? Right? So that's the first level at which there's a total tie-in between Babylon and Rome. They did the same thing repeating itself. Do notice there's one more thing that I didn't put up here that's, that's the same about them. Remember there was a miraculous restoration 70 years later by the Babylonians letting the Israelites come back, reestablish the nation, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple? You remember John has been talking about there's going to be a nation of Israel. Now, when he's talking, when he's writing this, there isn't one. There's going to be a nation, though. There's going to be a city, and there's going to be a temple. So it's all being restored miraculously by God. So the parallels are precise. Okay? Now, but let's go in a little bit, let's go a little bit deeper, because there's a deeper level at which Babylon and Rome communicate. Poetry, right? We're, we did one level, but now we're doing a deeper level. I stared at her in complete amazement. Why are you so amazed, the angel said. I'll tell you the mystery of this woman and the beast and the seven heads, the ten horns. The beast, and this is what we did in chapter 13, so I'm just reading it, and if you want to get it explained, go back to that sermon. The beast you saw once alive, but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up out of the bottom's pit and go to eternal destruction. The people who belong to this world, whose names are not written in the book of life before the world was made, would be amazed, and the reappearance of this beast who, who had died. And again, I'm just, uh, there's so much in there, but we already took a lot of time on it. So, this calls for a mind of understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the Roman rules. What's, what seven hills always referred to in Scripture? Always. <laughs> Without fail. Now, it's not only referring to Rome. Because he'll just about to say, and it's also seven kings. So it's more than just Rome, but it clearly is Rome too. At least in part. Poetry. One level. All right? So what he says is, he says, this calls for a mind of understanding. Now, how are Rome and Babylon linked more deeply than just by the destruction elements? 
Well, yeah, but let me, Babylon's legendary excesses. Alexander the Great could have like home, could have like made his home city anywhere in the world. After conquering the world, guess where he made his home city? Babylon. Why? Because it was the best place. It had the legendary hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. But it wasn't just that. Do you remember what Alexander died from? Syphilis. It was, it was one of these cities that happens it, throughout history where there's one place where everybody who doesn't just want a home and a white picket fence goes. If you really have something wrong with you, then you go to New York. See? <laughs> if there's a drive inside of you that you can't quench, that is wants, I, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. And it's not just a, a, a you know, it's a, you know, you got to prove it. You, you, you want everything. And you don't just want everything. You want everything more than anybody else. And you don't just want it more than anybody. You want everything and you don't want anything restraining you in any way. This is what it is to be a master of the universe. The famous phrase that came out of Tom Wolfe's book about New York called The Bonfire of the Vanities. Okay? Excellent book, by the way. And this, this, is what, this is what we're talking about here. Babylon in that day was that place and for a very long time was that place. By the way, is there a Babylon right now? About 275 B.C. disappears. Hasn't been around since. Will there be a literal Babylon in the end? If you, if you agree with me, yeah, there will be. Now, will it be actually Babylon in the same place that Babylon was? I think that one's up for debate. It could be something like New York or something else. There's a very critical thing, though, that's different about New York and Babylon and Rome that we're going to get to in one second. But the bottom line that makes New York and London and other places that are pleasure palaces of world power and corruption and wealth and degradation and no restraints and, you know, all that kind of stuff is one thing that makes any city that's in the world right now not be the Babylon yet. It could happen very quickly. We've noticed a lot of things in here. All of the elements are in place. This would probably be, for anybody who wants to say that the, it could happen tomorrow, the end times could happen tomorrow, and they could, they could begin tomorrow. But the bottom line is, a Babylon has to rise up. A city that is not just wanton in its prostitution, sex, and morality, and seducing the entire world to come along. People lust after the riches that are to be found in New York's, in Babylon's, in Rome's, and so on. See? Okay? Yeah. Okay? So Babylon's legendary excesses. Now, here's the key. Okay? I, let me just give you two stories. These are biblical stories, and they don't actually get to it very well, but they're the biblical stories, so I'll use those. Okay? Uh, remember Daniel? Daniel is one of the guys that's, you know, is captured and taken over there to Babylon. You remember what he does? He, is, he goes into the king's court because he's a smart guy, and they want to raise him up and use him and, and get his wisdom and all that. And he's to be fed what? The king's portion. In other words, the really good food. The Bernay, the Hollandaise, the rich, lavish. Now he refuses it because he actually thinks it's going to be harmful to him. And modern science would tell us, yes it is. In fact, so much so, how many of you know John Howie's? John Howie just down the street here, okay? John, the first time I ever heard about John Howie, it was, it was a guy in the church who was put on Facebook. He said, at John Howie, dot, 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 food coma. <laughs> okay? Now, John Howie has one of the king's portions in it. I swear this had to be in ancient Babylon because it's that. Now, most of you don't know what that is. Let me tell you what that is. 
That is a piece of bacon, deep fat fried in tempura, that you dip in a total syrup teriyaki. Now, the tongue can taste salt, sweet, sour, and fat, depending on how you want to define it. That food right there has absolutely not one nutritional aspect to it. What, there's nothing nutritional in that. You could not live on that food. But it is salt and fat and sweet to the max without any other adornment. Brought down to its finest format. And I'm telling you, I'm, can you see how much more I'm spitting? Because I'm literally drooling. I'm willing to sacrifice and do research on these things for the good of this sermon, of this church. <laughs> I'm just telling you, okay? This is, this is the king's portion that Daniel wisely said, no thanks. Went and ate vegetables instead. I can resist that. I'm not quite to the vegetable stage yet. Okay. But that's Daniel. Let me take you to a more serious one. Do you remember? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon and the one that, that God has a, quite a relationship with, actually. Uh, bottom line is, he dies. It's not clear whether or not his son ever ascends to the throne, but his grandson does, Belshazzar. Belshazzar is doing a typically Babylonian thing, which is what? An orgy, a party. They're having a huge party. And they're just getting drunk as skunks, and they're just totally wasted and everything else. And they get so wasted that they begin to think to themselves, you know what would be a good idea for us? To go get the gold goblets that, and the gold utensils and so on that were used in the temple. We should party with those. So they bring them in. And when they do, a mysterious hand, no arm, just a hand, shows up and starts writing something on the wall. That's where we get the expression, the handwriting's on the wall. And what it means is, it's over. Because he doesn't get what it is. He gets Daniel, and Daniel says, here's what it is. You've been found wanting. <laughs> You've been tried and tested by God, and you haven't lived up to it, and you're over, and so is your kingdom. It's it. You're done. Because of this wanton, out-of-control, excess, no restraints, perversion, corruption, the whole nine yards. See it? Now, you take as bad as Babylon is, Learn, read about it. Take, take as bad as it is. You multiply it by about a hundred and you begin to approach Rome. To this day, in the history of the world, I don't believe that you can find another city that is more known for its degradation, for its wealth. I mean, to this day, there's not a city in the world that it was as wealthy as the citizens of Rome. All roads lead to Rome. All over the whole world, all of the goods of the whole world were coming in. And there's just story after story after story of, you know, orgies, the, 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 just the sexual rampant. They had, they had entire vacation cities that were nothing but just sexual pleasure places. And it's not like Bangkok or some little city in a little house back in. It was the whole stinking city, one of which gets a volcano on it, right? Can't remember the name of it right now, but Pompeii. Okay, that was one of those cities. Okay? And, and the bottom line is Rome's excesses are absolutely legendary. But remember I said that it's not just the prostitute is only part of what this Babylon city, whether it be Rome or somewhere else. There's another aspect than just wanton sexuality and perversion. And all. Another aspect is 
She's drunk on the blood of the saint. See, right now we could say New York is a cesspool in terms of people throwing off restraint and doing whatever they want. And it's not that bad, but it's pretty bad, right? But the one thing about New York is you couldn't say it's drunk on the blood of the saints. It's not persecuting Christians. Babylon did. Babylon killed a whole lot of Jewish people, <laughs> right? Rome did. Rome killed a whole lot of Jewish people. And right now, 90, 92, when he's writing, Peter's been martyred in Rome, hung upside down on a cross so that he wouldn't be crucified as his Lord was, and Paul has been beheaded. Okay? People are being fed to the lions, etc. This is, this is Tacitus talking about Nero. Remember, Nero was the emperor who, you know, apparently drunk, was fiddling while Rome burned. There were no fiddles at that time, so that's a misnomer of a statement. But bottom line is, the point is, Nero was probably trying to clear some land so that he could expand his compound. Okay? And there were people that lived there, and he burned them out. Okay? And so the bottom line is, Tacitus says, consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero had set the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. What were their abominations exactly? Was it sexual? Was it slavery? Was it uh, abuse? Was it corruption? What were their abominations? Yeah, raising of the dead. There you go. <laughs> Called Christians or Christians by the populace. Christus. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. This is a history written in the, in the time. Christianity thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, but even in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty, then upon their information, in other words, they confessed to being Christians, and they, if they did, they were arrested, okay? An immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city, but just because people didn't like them. <laughs> Why? Because there were people that stood against sexual rampantness, total corruption, bribery, injustice. They were living their lives, and they were not partaking in the degradation that was the city, which tends to make the people that are mad at the people who won't. Romans 1 at the very end, right? Not only will they want you to do the same, but they'll force you to. Because they're trying to make it okay here. See, if nobody's standing up for righteousness, then we all must be okay. There's a good satanic concept for you. Okay? Accordingly, the rest was made, firing the city. Mockery of all sorts was added to their deaths. By the way, the Colosseum comes a little later. That's where they start feeding them to the lions and so on. But they actually started doing this in Nero's time. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. You know what that means? That means that Nero had these beautiful gardens, and in order to light them at night, he would take living Christians, douse them in oil, put them on, the, put them on a pole, and light them up. And then they would, they would scream, but that apparently happened before the party, because that would be a downer to the party. But then they would burn, you know, fat, right? The skin. And that's how they would light their thing. Now think about that for just a second. See, now, now there's a city, and, and John's writing this, and this is happening while John's writing this. So this isn't, see, when he talks about this city being drunk on the blood of the saints, this isn't abstract for him. This isn't future. This is 
experience. This is what's happening. And the key that we have to remember is, is that when the actual Babylon comes, whether it be in the actual location of Babylon, which it may, may well be with oil and, and Islam and so on, the, the way that it's going, and I'm not saying Islam, I, I, I just want you to understand, the point is that could be one of the locations with all the wealth that's there. Somebody said Dubai earlier, okay? It could be. But the bottom line is, that I don't know that it's even helpful to speculate where it's going to be. The point is, we know it when we see it. You can discern the seasons. Who or what is Babylon? Well, it's clearly Rome. But it's not just Rome. See, because he says, it also represents seven kings. Again, we did all this in chapter 13, so let me just quickly read it. Five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, seventh yet to come, his reign will be brief. Scarlet beast that was, but is no longer, is the eighth king. He's like the other seven. He too is headed for destruction. Ten horns of the beast, ten kings. I've not yet risen to power. This is in the end. They'll be appointed their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They all agree to give their power to him and authority. You know, let me just do something. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns. That's Rome. The seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. That's Germany. I just want to show you how precise the language is here. So they'll all agree to give him their power and authority. All these ten kings will. Together they'll go to war against the Lamb, but we know in the end who wins. We know the end of the book. The Lamb will defeat them because he's Lord of Lords, King of Kings, his called and children of the faithful ones will be with him. He will save you. Okay? And he says it over and over in the book, right? Revelation, always remember, is comfort food. Comfort food for those who are going to experience persecution, saying don't lose heart. Be comforted. It's going to be okay. It may not be very nice to get there, but it's going to be okay. Okay? So, here we go. And now, now here's where it gets really weird. Watch this. So, who or what is Babylon? As we've been saying, it's these major centers of wealth and power. Babylon, Athens, Rome, Paris, London, New York. And again, persecution in Christians on those last three, not so much. So, that's just more that wealth and power, worldly power and their lack of restraint and all that kind of stuff. But it keeps going. And it goes to here. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of relation language. In other words, New York right now in the world is the world city, right? And the world, it sits on top of the world and it controls it in a whole lot of ways, right? The 99ers versus the one percenters, blah, 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 right? The scarlet beast and his ten horns, they love the prostitute. Because that's what they are. They're satanic, right? It's about do what you want to do. It's about pleasure. It's about go do whatever you want to do. Of course, they love the prostitute because it's consistent with them. It's going, not doing the things of God. It's doing other stuff. In soap, whenever, I always tell us, you know, soap is this way of doing Bible reading. You go to our website, and you just look on it, and there's soap, and you read the section. What I always tell you when you're reading soap is to do this. Look for the speed bumps. Look for the thing that doesn't make any sense. Like you're reading along and all of a sudden you read something and you go, wait a minute, what's that? See, I expect that to say the scarlet beast and the ten horns all love the prostitute, but instead it says they all hate the prostitute, and I'm going, they seem to be two peas in a pod. What the heck is going on? I haven't just hit a speed bump here. I've hit some sort of huge sinkhole that's taken out the entire road before me, and my car has plunged into a hole, and I don't know how to get out anymore. i got to get out. This is a good thing to soap to work through, to ask God about. Why do they hate the prostitute? I thought they were 
two peas in a pod. By the way, if you really want to know the deepest answer to this, be sure and come next week. This is the revelation that is just going to, it's amazing. But, but having said that, just for today, the scarlet beast and the ten horns, not only do they hate the prostitute, but look what they do. They strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. They hate her. This doesn't make any sense, does it? How are we to understand this? I thought the unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, I thought that the prostitute was the plus one on their wedding invite. Right? See, I thought it was, you know, Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, prostitute. You're all in the same game, right? You know what I mean? Come on. And yet, what's being said is the exact opposite of that. They hate her. They strip her naked. They eat her flesh. They burn her remains with fire. Who is she? See, all the t all, I almost had the woman as a synonym for Satan. It was like Satan was the one riding on the beast. Blah, 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 right? But it's not, is it? So what is it? I think there's a really simple way to understand it. Where does the word Babylon come from? The Tower of Babel. What's the Tower of Babel? Well, remember, there was a bunch of people, and then they had violence in their hearts, so God flooded the world, and everybody died, and the, but just a few were left. And the few that left as they started to repopulate the world, what did they do? Where did they go to? Did they trust God? They said, let's go build a city, and you can't really see it very well, but that's a city. Let's go build a city and a tower to the sky where we can make a name for ourselves. See, they weren't going to God. They were going to themselves. They weren't going... They weren't going all over the world, having dominion over it, exploring it, learning about God. What they were going to do was pursue the things that they wanted to pursue. Like the citizens of every great city do. Because I'm the master of the universe. There's no God. I can do whatever I want with impunity. Because there is no God. I can do what feels good because who's going to stop me? I'm the master of the universe. I throw off the restraints of God, but I throw off Satan too. It's just the survival of the fittest. It's just whoever can do it, who's ever the strongest, who's ever got the most money, whoever can bribe the most people and get the most girls and do whatever. They, this is it. In a very fundamental way now, not that we don't have satanic influence in us, but in a very fundamental way now, what is, who is Babylon? It's us. That's the spirit. Us unrestrained. Us unmoored. Us throwing off God and everything else. We think we've thrown off Satan. We haven't. But nonetheless, see, it's us. I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to read chapter 18 to you. And what I want you to do as I read it is I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture it. And you don't have to close your eyes just yet. I'm going to explain it to you. Don't close your eyes. What I'm, saying. I'm going to read chapter 18 to you. And when I read chapter 18 to you, I want you to understand. This is what they call a doom song. You can find it in Isaiah. You can find it in Jeremiah. You can find it all over the place about Babylon and about other cities and so on. And I mean word for word type stuff. Okay? But this is a doom song about Babylon. And when you're reading it, I want you to read it as the poetry that it's intended to be. 
Because yes, it's talking about Rome. But yes, it's also talking about this power. People unrestrained with each other going into evil all by ourselves. Or with some influence, but you catch my drift. Right? So I want you to read it that way, but I also want you to read it one other way. You remember that little slip of paper that you wrote down something on? I want you to take a minute and I want you to look at it. And I want you to remember that. Now mostly when we read this, what you're going to be hearing is the fall of Rome. And by the way, David Wilkerson, you know, a guy who a lot of people in here know, died in a car accident a little while ago, tragically. He believed with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength that New York was Babylon. And that everything that Revelation was talking about was this. So when you read this, I don't want you to just read about Rome, some city that existed way long time ago. I want you to read it as, let's just say New York got to the place to where it was in fact killing the saints. Where there was persecution and martyrdom, which very easily could happen because that's what happens in the fifth seal, right? Things are going bad and people blame the Christians just like Nero did. And a bunch of Christians start getting killed as the world goes crazy, okay? So I want you to think of it as, as being New York too. And I want you to even... You know, have some 9-11 imagery in your mind as you hear some of these things. Okay? But I want you to listen to it, not just understanding that it's this Babylon slash Rome, this world power in, in all of its evilness. But I want you to just keep in the back of your mind, we're going to come to it afterwards and make it more clear. But I want you to keep in your mind that this is also God poetically talking about that, whatever it is you're leaning on. See, we're just about to hear about the destruction of the world's economy. Isn't that fairly important to you right now? I mean, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if the economy goes to hell in a handbasket, how are you going to eat? You have a job. You have income. You got a house because of it. You got a car because of it. You got food because of it. If the economy, if the world really does go into utter fall, how do you do any of those things? So what are you leaning on, see? You're leaning on the fact that the sun comes up. Meaning that the economy is going to be here tomorrow and there's still going to be a way to make money so that you can live. What are you leaning on? Are you starting to hear the deeper place where this goes? The poetry of what God's trying to communicate as he takes every single thing that anybody leans on in the end and he eradicates it? Now, I'll make that more clear in the end, but let me just, I want you to close your eyes now. Try not to fall asleep. This is from the message because I think that Eugene really nails this entire passage. Following this, I saw another angel descend from heaven. His authority was immense. His glory flooded the earth with brightness. His voice thunderous. Ruined, ruined, great Babylon, ruined. A ghost town for demons is all that's left. A garrison of carrion spirits, meat-eating spirits. A garrison of loathsome carrion birds. All nations drank the wild wine of her whoring. Kings of the earth went whoring with her. Entrepreneurs made millions exploiting her. Just then I heard another shout out of heaven. Get out, my people, as fast as you can so you don't get mixed up in her sin, so that you don't get caught in her doom. Her sins stink to high heaven. God has remembered every evil she's done. Give her back double for what she's given, double what she's doubled in her works, double the recipe and the cup she mixed. Bring her flaunting wild ways to torment and tears because she gloated. I'm queen over all. I'm no widow. There's never a tear on my face. In one day, disasters will crush her. Death, 
heartbreak, famine. She'll be burned by fire because God, the strong God who judges her, has had enough. The kings of the earth will see the smoke of her burning and they'll cry and carry on. The kings who went night after night to her brothel, they'll keep their distance for fear they'll get burned and they'll cry their lament. Doom, doom, the great city doomed. City of Babylon, strong city. In one hour it's over. Your judgment come. The traders will cry and carry on because of the bottom dropped out of their business. No more market for their goods. Gold, silver, precious gems, pearls, fabrics of fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, perfumed wood, vessels of ivory, precious woods, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, and oil, flour, and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. Their terrible traffic in human lives. Everything you've lived for, gone. All delicate and delectable luxury, lost. Not a scrap, not a thread to be found. The traders who made millions off of her kept their distance for fear of getting burned and cried out all the more, doom, doom, the great city doomed, dressed in the latest fashions, adorned with the finest jewels, in one hour such wealth wiped out. All the ship's captains and travelers by sea, sailors and toilers of the sea, stood at a distance and cried their lament when they saw the smoke from her burning. Oh, what a city. There never was a city like her. They threw dust on their heads and cried as if the world had come to an end. Doom, doom, the great city doomed. All who owned ships or did business by sea got rich on her, great, on her getting and spending, and now it's over, wiped out in one hour. Oh, heavens, celebrate and join in, saints, apostles, and prophets. God has judged her. Every wrong you suffered from her has been judged. A strong angel reached for a boulder, huge like a millstone. He heaved it in the sea, saying, heaved and sunk the great city Babylon, sunk in the sea, not a sign of her to ever be seen again. Silent, the music of harpists and singers. You'll never hear flutes and trumpets again. Artisans of every kind, gone. You'll never see their like again. The voice of the millstone grinding falls dumb. You'll never hear that sound again. The light from lamps, never again. Never again, laughter of even the bride and groom. Her traders robbed the whole earth blind and by black magic arts deceived the nations. The only thing left of Babylon is blood. The blood of the saints and prophets, the murdered and the martyred. Now open your eyes here for just one second. You can hear Rome and you can hear New York and you can think back to 9-11 and you can see, that's just a little shot across the bow, but you can see a city that everybody in the whole world looks to suddenly nuked or whatever and burning and, and smoke ascending and the whole world mourning this, can't you? And you can see the thing that God is saying and, and doing, which is that the whole economy is crashing, that everybody's life is crashing, that everything is crashing, that everything is fallen. And when they're doomed, it's not just a doom and a sorrow for the city, it's a doom and a sorrow for how are we going to live? Because everything has fallen. Now that's the economy. But I want to do something here. Remember on your slip of paper, there were other things that you relied upon. Can I do something about the economy? Let me, let me make something really clear. Even a really good economy sucks compared to what God has. What did God have for us? What did God intend the world to be? A garden. 
Not a place of competition, not a place of, a place where anything you wanted, you just go out and pick it and eat it and live and you're in safety, there's no death. The, the, what God intended was the garden. Here's the thing about the economy, even if it's doing well, even if you're doing well in it, it still is exacting a cost. It still is taking a toll from you by the sweat of your brow. You see? It's not, it's not, there's only a slice of pie, and if you get something, somebody gets no more, that's, that's just nonsense. But there is a cost in your soul to the four-letter word of work. That is not God's intention. This is not what he has for us. Do you realize, see, I look at my job, I even like my job. Praise God, I think I've got the best job in the world. Thank you, God, for the job that I get to have, as hard as it is sometimes. This is wonderful. But you do realize that the best the best job ever, the one that somebody loved the very most, doesn't even, doesn't even begin to touch what heaven is going to be for everybody. This just glorious rest, this peace. Here's what I think God is trying to say to us today. This is the cool moment, I hope, for you. Whatever we lean on is ultimately a sharp stick. It may be supporting us, but it's also poking us, drawing blood, exacting a cost from us. Every single thing that every person wrote down on their list that wasn't God, no matter how wonderful it is, no matter how much it's a gifting and a gift from God, it's still, in a fallen world, isn't as good as what God has. And here's what God is doing in grace. He's delivering us from our velvet handcuffs. He's delivering us from a world that even has his goodness in it. But stuff is stuff too. What he's trying to do is he's trying to take us and he's trying to say, here's the point. The gifts that you have, you need those. The, the stuff that you wrote down that you lean on, it, most of it, I, I, I imagine nobody in here wrote down anything evil. You know what I mean? Sexual prowess right? Okay? I imagine it was intellect or skill set or things that God gave you, and this is good stuff. This is important stuff, and this is stuff that you'll walk out of here today, and you'll continue to utilize in order to make provision, make the world a better place, and do all this kind of stuff. But here's what I think God's trying to do. I think he's trying to set you free from everything that you would lean on that is not him, so that you can use it but not be captured by it, not be held in bondage to it. I think God's trying to set us free because after all, that's what Revelation is about, right? It's the end of all the other stuff so that it's just us and God.